Welcome to the podcast of CGEM, the Center for Genetically Encoded Materials. CGEM is a National Science Foundation Center for Chemical Innovation dedicated to transforming the fabric of society with genetically encoded polymers. I'm Jeffrey Townsend, Elihu Associate Professor of Biostatistics and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University and the Director of Collaborative Communication and Information Transfer at CGEM. In our first full-length podcast, I'll be interviewing Alana Shepherds, Sterling Professor of Chemistry at Yale University. Professor Shepherds has received many honors and awards during her career, most recently the American Chemical Biology Prize and the Alexander M. Cruikshank Prize in 2010, the Ronald Breslow Award for Achievement in Biomimetic Chemistry in 2012, and the Welland Medal in 2015. Most recently, Professor Shepherds was the visionary bringing together a team to perform some remarkable chemistry that we'll talk about today. Her ideas were awarded a National Science Foundation Center for Chemical Innovation grant, and she kicked off the center in 2017. Alana, it's great to have you here in the studio. Before we get into our details of the exciting science that's going on at CGEM, I'd like to give our listeners a little bit of a perspective on the biggest picture. Specifically, I know that uh, a lot of the chemistry that's been going on has been chemistry working at an in vivo scale. And we're really taking it to an in vivo scale in putting things into, uh, into actual cells and making them make materials. That's the goal of CGEM to some degree. So is there, is there a, a way that the previous work that's been done uh, can be contrasted and compared to what's being done in CGEM along those lines? Uh, absolutely. You know, the truth is that um, scientists have been trying to learn how to make proteins containing unnatural residues for over 20 years. Um, much of this work began um, in the lab of Peter Schultz, who was then at UC Berkeley and is now uh, the, uh, the head of the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla. Um, and those experiments really focused on recognizing that the ribosome active site, this cavity called the peptidyl transferase center that makes amide bonds, could accommodate side chains that were a little different than the normal alpha amino acids that are found in proteins. In particular, it could accommodate all manner of aromatic side chains, all manner of charge side chains, things that bind metals, things that induce cross-linking between proteins. I mean, all of that was done through beautiful evolution work focused on generating enzymes called aminoacyltRNA synthetases that would load a tRNA with the unnatural monomer of choice. The difference is that what no one had done, at least in vivo, is try to expand the chemistry of the ribosome as opposed to the chemistry of the aminoacyltRNA synthetases so that the peptidyl transferase itself catalyzed bond formation between things that don't look like alpha amino acids. And that's really what is special about CGEM and what differentiates our goals from goals that have preceded us. We're really focusing on the ribosome. We need all of the information that was gleaned from 20 plus years of quote, genetic code expansion. But we re what we really want to do is make a new catalyst. We want to take this machine called the ribosome, right, 2.8 megadaltons of protein and RNA, and turn it into a catalyst to make bonds that have never been made by the ribosome before. That's really exciting. 
Um, so, but on the on the broadest level, and we'll talk a little bit more about the details of like how we can uh, how we've gotten where we are later. But on the broadest level, for the person saying going to the grocery store or going to the hospital, how might might this make a difference to them in that, ten years or twenty years? That's a great question, and I think to answer that question, I I, I need to kind of share some history because there's an analogous situation that. Um, occurred in science in the starting in the mid 1980s, and so in 1985, Buckminster Fullerene was discovered. Oh, right, yeah. this is a ball of 60 carbon atoms, all arranged in perfect geometry, and that discovery predicated the whole field of nanotechnology and is the predecessor of all carbon nanotubes that exist today. Yeah, I remember when it first was discovered, people sort of were like, whiz, wow, that's something incredible. What kind of a thing is it? What can we do with it? There was a no lot of No one had like, any idea yeah, what you could do with yeah. it. I mean, it was just totally cool. You know, my <laughs> colleague Martin Saunders spent 10 years of his scientific career trying to figure out how to get, you know, noble gases into the center of Buckminster Fullerene. No one had any clue what to do with it, but it was, in fact unique because it was a new form of chemical matter. No one had ever made molecules that looked like this before. CGEM's goals are the same. No one had any idea that Buckminster Fullerene was going to lead to the development of nanotechnology, right, and the development of carbon nanotubes, which are in all, I mean, they are in materials that affect our life every day, right? So we're trying to make sequence-defined polymers, which are a class of molecules that have never been made. So no one really knows what emergent properties will be will be displayed by polymers that have the sequence control that one would expect to observe in a protein. But given that proteins, the unique properties of proteins emerge because they have a defined sequence, I find it very hard to believe that unique properties will not also observe from materials whose monomers are arranged in a genetically defined array, just like proteins. That's uh, yeah, very exciting. Can I, can I ask you, to, let's try to dig a little deeper into the science, but it's a science that I think could, as you just talked about, really affect all our lives. But it's also really complex science having to do with the this detailed machinery of the living cells, how that machinery works. Could we just back up a moment and talk about what that machinery is a little bit and how it works? Like, Alana, can you remember when you first started learning about the cellular machinery? How old were you? And did you have any idea that later in life you might be a scientist using that machinery to create new molecules and new materials? Well, you know, it kind of um, kind of uh, reveals my age. But the truth is that when I was in high school, I know that they knew what the ribosome was because this was in the mid-1970s, but I certainly had no sense then that I would end up working on the ribosome. And the truth is that all I really remember from high school biology, which I took as a sophomore, was that plant cells had these these elements called xylem and phloem, and the xylem took nutrients up and the phloem moved them down. And that was all I remember from sophomore biology. Well, it's still The first time I discovered the ribosome was as a postdoc. Okay. So I had completed my graduate training at Columbia with Ronald Breslow, and I moved to Caltech to work with Peter Durvin. And at that point in his career, Peter Durvin had, um, had become extremely well-known for this incredibly simple but powerful idea, which is that if you simply took a molecule that bound DNA and linked it to another molecule called iron EDTA in the presence of oxygen, um, that 
iron EDTA complex would generate hydroxyl radicals, and the hydroxyl radicals would diffuse and cleave the DNA located close to where the ligand was bound. And so it provided him a way to figure out where small molecules bound to DNA in, in the context of small plasmids, restriction fragments, and even in the context of genomes. And when I arrived at Caltech, Peter was interested in taking the same idea and applying it to RNA. And so he wanted me to map binding sites of antibiotics on the ribosome. Ah. Right. So what most people don't realize, because they just take these beautiful pills, is that many of the antibiotics that are used today, tetracycline, erythromycin, spectinomycin, all of those antibiotics that we take every day, they act by inhibiting the function of the ribosome and bact bacteria. And when the ribosome doesn't work? And when the ribosome doesn't work, the cell can't make protein. And when cells can't make protein, they die. Okay, so that's why these drugs act as antibiotics. Um, but the truth is that at that point in time, you know, the beautiful structure of the ribosome was more than a decade away. People knew that it was composed of RNA, but at that time, people didn't even know that the catalytic center was composed of RNA. This was, you know, this was 1986. Mm -hmm. But Peter wanted to know where antibiotics bound to ribosomes, and so. I synthesized a set of antibiotics that were linked to iron EDTA and went down to USC to isolate ribosomes from Drosophila embryos, learned how to do that, um, and learned how to, you know, figure out exactly where the antibiotics were binding to RNA. I think the most kind of the perhaps the most interesting outcome of that study was that we never actually figured out where any of the antibiotics bound. Huh. Um, but they did actually provide the first glimpses into the secondary structural elements within ribosomal RNA. And that work was subsequently published, and it was actually quite a fantastic paper. Oh, that's exciting to you. It's a, and uh, the truth is that when I first be, when I first arrived at Yale, we did continue to work on RNA. You know, so one of my first projects was to design a family of molecules called we call them tethered oligonucleotide probes. Boy, this sets me back. Um, and these molecules were designed to provide a readout of how close different loops in RNA were relative to each other. Um, under physiological conditions, right? In those days, there was no, it was predated Jennifer Doudna's initial crystal structures of RNA. It pre certainly predated all the cryo-EM studies that are being done now. And at that point, there were really only chemical methods to figure out how RNA was organized in three-dimensional space. And these probes provided a way to provide some element of that information. And once you have that information, that tells you something about how the ribosome is structured, and knowing more about how the ribosome is structured enables what kind of things to be performed in the science. Well, we didn't work on the ribosome. The ribosome okay. was too complicated. And so okay. we worked on smaller RNAs um, that were involved in various diseases. And the idea was that if you could learn more about how these tertiary elements were structured, you might be able to design inhibitors that could bind to them and disrupt their, their function in a cell. But it sounds like you, in that, at that time, sort of ended up, that's, is that where you feel like you started engaging in this somewhat cross-disciplinary science where you're doing a lot of chemistry and biology at the same time? Uh, um, it was certainly that era. You know, uh -huh. it was a, that, you know, when I first arrived at Yale, it was the late 1980s. And I think that time was, represented an important transition for the field of chemical biology. I would say in the years preceding that, um, most, not all, but most people associated with chemical biology or bioorganic chemistry, which is what it's also called, most of those experiments were performed in Eppendorf tubes. 
mm-hmm. or in round bottom flasks. Um, and it was very rare. It certainly was happening, but it was very rare for someone to do experiments in an organism. Um, and it was even more unusual um, for for someone who was trained as a chemist to work on molecules whose molecular weights were more were higher than about a thousand. Um, and when I applied to Yale for my initial faculty position, I applied with three separate proposals. Um, two of them really focused on s- small molecule bioorganic chemistry. I mean, we were trying to develop molecules that self-assembled, and there were other experiments that focused on you know selective modulation of structure. But I had one proposal um, that was that was at the end that was well-developed, but it was different because it focused on um, using some of the ideas that I had learned about in Durbin's lab not to um, discover how ligands interacted with DNA or RNA, but instead to learn how ligands interacting interacted with proteins, uh-huh. right? And that transition from chemistry applied to smaller molecules, right, often referred to as enzymology or biological chemistry, to chemistry applied to understand and apply the functions of macromolecules was really very new. And it was at that point that that our focus broadened considerably um, to include biology and engineering and medicine. Great. So, so I, I want to just so let's go over that cellular machinery in just a little more detail, just to make sure everyone's up on the same page. So, so we've got a ribosome in the cell, right? And and it's uh, and, you it's know, like I'm, your car. Yeah, I'm, it's like yeah. your car. It's like I, your car. I love these analogies, okay. right? <laughs> Tell us about the car. Okay, analogy. so the car. So the car consists. The car consists of. Um, two types of molecules. It consists of RNA, which is really the most important portion of the ribosome. And then it consists of proteins, which are really decorating the RNA and helping it maintain its structure, contributing to function, certainly, um, but not contributing in a way that cannot be somehow um, uh, replaced. Okay, so the RNA is 2.8 million Daltons of molecular weight. Just to put that in perspective, that's about 10,000 times larger than cholesterol. Okay, Huge. super big. Yeah. Um, and it really acts, it's a, it's a machine, right? It has a, a brain, and the brain is the peptidyl transferase center. Another portion of the brain is probably the decoding center. And so the RNA has two parts, the ribosome has two parts. There's a small part and a big part. And they come together around a message, which is the mRNA that that contains the information necessary to make a protein, right? So it tells you what is the order of amino acids that we want placed in this protein precisely and in a specified direction. And so the small subunit and the large subunit assemble around this message. And then that, that assembled machine has two pockets. Well, there are actually three, but let's just talk about two. So there's one pocket into which a tRNA binds to bring an amino acid, and there's another pocket into which the growing peptide chain is found. And the two tRNAs interact with these two pockets, and the structure of those pockets are such that it places the amino acid that needs to be added to bound the peptide, to the TRNA. which is bound to the tRNA, in very close proximity of an ester bond, which links the growing peptide change to the other tRNA. And this beautiful acyl transfer reaction happens. Okay, you don't know what that is, but where the nitrogen acts as a nucleophile, it attacks the carbonyl, you form a tetrial intermediate, the tetrial intermediate breaks down, 
And what that effectively does is transfer the peptide chain from the from the tRNA to which it was covalently attached originally to the new tRNA. Mm-hmm. And then the tRNA moves over into the other site, and the whole process happens again. And so this happens hundreds, many hundreds, a thousand times to make very long proteins. Mm-hmm. And the beauty is that the ribosome gets it right because the way it knows which amino acid to add is dictated by the code of the message that's bound to the center of the ribosome. Great. And so what we're trying to do is to just use that code, but just make different tRNAs. Right, we're trying- so let me ask you one question okay. just to connect this to, you know, a little bit to what people think about in their everyday life, which is, you know, uh, probably everyone knows about the the fact that we need to get all our amino acids, right, in our in the protein, in the food that we eat. And if we don't, there's some essential ones that are missing. So yeah. how would that play into that process? Like if you had some essential amino acid that, was, that you weren't getting into your diet, um, it would not get brought in by the tRNA because- No, it would have- get brought in by the tRNA. It simply would not- result from degradation of other proteins. And so the, the beauty of the peptidyl transferase center is that um, this transfer event appears to be mediated by what we call proximity catalysis, largely. And so what there's just a pocket, right? And the pocket positions the nitrogen perfectly to add to that carbonyl, right? So in th- it's been shown that, that the, as long as the amino acid that's bound on the tRNA um, is similar in structure to natural alpha amino acids, whether they come from your food, your diet, you know, innate biosynthesis, or, or just added to cells, as we do, right? If you have an enzyme that can link that amino acid or whatever it is to a tRNA, then it can be guided into that active site and okay. participate in catalysis. And if the amino acid isn't there because you don't consume it and you can't manufacture it, then the pro- what happens to the protein generation process? Well, it stalls. It ah. stalls. And the, it stalls. And at least in eukaryotes, there are really specific methods to get rid of those partially synthesized proteins. Okay. And that's not a good thing for human health, I don't think, if you don't, <laughs> aren't getting your proteins, as we talked about earlier. Okay. So that's how the ribosome takes uh, amino acids using tRNAs uh, uh, to manufacture proteins, these long polymers that we naturally have. But what CGEM is doing is creating new polymers. So uh, How does that work? Yeah. How okay. does that work? Right. So I think the key, you know, so that's actually a terrific question because Certainly, people have wondered for decades about whether or not the ribosome could, in some science fiction movie, be engineered to generate something that isn't a natural peptide. And some of it's not science fiction, as I mentioned. And so there's, you know, beautiful, you know, more than 200 different, you know, unnatural alpha amino acids. So the same overall structure as the amino acids that are found in proteins, you know, they can be incorporated. And all you need to do that is an enzyme that takes this non-natural alpha amino acid and condenses it with tRNA and an ATP catalyzed reaction. And there's been beautiful work generating enzymes of that, of that general form. But the problem is that in order to incorporate things into proteins that don't have the structure of an alpha amino acid, I don't think anyone believed that it could be done with a wild-type ribosome. 
because the wild-type ribosome has evolved for billions of years to make bonds between alpha amino acids, not to make bonds between other things. And in fact, you could imagine that, you know, over time, the ribosome would have been selected so that it doesn't incorporate things. So just in case there was some errant synthetase that put something very bizarre on the end of a tRNA, you don't want that in your proteins. Okay. Not in mine, anyway. No. (laughs) So I have to say that it actually was recently discovered Right by a fantastic scientist in Japan named Hirokai Suga, that if you really kind of beat on them, wild-type ribosomes will in fact incorporate things other than alpha amino acids. And that, I think hints to that has, have been known for a long time, but there's been some recent work that shows that that actually can work really well in a test tube. Mm. Okay, in vivo, it never worked. And I think the part of the reason people were afraid to try an experiment to develop ribosomes that had these unique properties is because you actually needed two things in the cell that were unnatural and they needed to work together. And so in order, so our first goal was to incorporate a beta amino acid into a protein. Uh, Beta amino acids are the constituents of nylon. And so in essence, we were making proteins that were polypeptides that were kind of mixtures of the components of spider silk and the components of of a windbreaker. Oh wow! Right, it's totally cool. And, okay, and just to back up for one second, the beta. How would you discriminate Nylon, a beta versus an, a normal amino acid, even on the chemistry level? What's the, the only distinction? Why is it called is it, beta? It's called well. It's called beta for chemical reasons. But the important point is that the only way it differs is that the backbone of the amino acid has an extra carbon. And so natural amino acids, they have an amino group and a carboxyl group separated by one carbon. Mm -hmm. That's the alpha carbon. That's the carbon that carries the side chain, Mm -hmm. whether it's a hydrogen for glycine or, you know, a methyl group for alanine. Beta amino acids have one additional methylene group. And so they have an amino group, an alpha carbon, and then Alpha another carbon. CH2 group, and then the carboxylic acid. Okay. And, and so what that means is the proteins have an elongated backbone. And so rather than there being, you know, one carbon in between the nitrogen and the carbonyl, now there are two. You know, uh-huh. nylon, nylons are, are polymers of beta amino acids, gamma amino acids, delta amino acids. So that's oh. what makes, you know, well, until spandex came around, that's what <laughs> made stockings. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Okay, so the the idea was that in order to incorporate something like this into a ribosome in vivo, it was believed that you actually needed two unnatural machines at the same time. So it was imagined that you needed a synthetase in the cell, right, that was able to add this unnatural beta amino acid to a tRNA and not add any of the natural amino acids, okay? Mm -hmm. And then it was also believed that you needed a new ribosome. Okay, and so, but it, that, it, that's really hard to achieve because the typical way that one identifies new amino acyl tRNA synthetases is by doing a library sc- a selection where you select for incorporation into a protein. So you use a wild type ribosome. Yeah. And in order to, you'd imagine, in order to look for ribosomes that incorporate things that are natural, you need an amino acyl tRNA synthetase in the cell that would make the tRNA substrate. So you How do you get around two. that? <laughs> well, I had a brilliant postdoc who got around that. She was super smart. Her name is Clarissa Chexter. W- which, um, by the way, is a classic technique in science when you get stuck is have a brilliant postdoc it's come true, in and true. find the way. Well, sometimes it's a brilliant graduate student or a brilliant undergraduate, but in this case, it was a brilliant postdoc. And she said, baloney. <laughs> she, she really, she said, baloney. She said, I don't believe that there aren't some E. coli amino acyl tyranny synthetases that are sufficiently sloppy that they are not going to care about this extra methylene group. Mm-hmm. And she said, I hypothesize, okay, that if I 
look at you know a small number of natural E. coli synthetases, I'm going to find one that just doesn't care enough and that will incorporate both alpha and betas at the same time. And uh-huh. that gave us a wedge. And in fact, she was totally right. So it turns out that glycine and methionine and phenylalanine and one other, I actually don't remember, are pretty good. You know, they just, you know, the extra methylene in the backbone doesn't bother them. Uh-huh. And so even though the rates are slow, so, you know, so the KCATs and KMs are sim- simply are, are not, you know, equal to what they are for a natural substrate, but they're measurable and they're uh-huh. real and it works. And, uh-huh. and so then we have the synthetase. And at the same time, I actually had a brilliant graduate student, Wes Robertson, who used some very terrific insights um, from a fan- another fantastic scientist at Arizona named Sid Hecht to design a screen that would identify ribosomes whose peptidyl transferase centers were remodeled. And, uh-huh. and what he found is that by combining the results of that screen with the results of Clarissa's experiment, we were able to achieve for the first time um, the in vivo incorporation of a beta amino acid into a protein. Now, you know, it, the truth is that the yield was low. The ribosomes are sick. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is not. I, you know, I don't miss. You know, the first planes crashed. <laughs> you know, um, and I would say that this isn't that far from that situation. But it did work, and we did measure, and you know, with beautiful mass spec evidence showing the incorporation of the beta amino acid. And the beautiful part is that that provided us with sufficient preliminary results to develop a team to do something even more ambitious, which is to incorporate things that really don't even look like amino acids into proteins. And uh-huh. that, that is the origins of CGEM. That's really cool. Can you describe at least a little bit the moment where you sort of figured out this was working in, in vivo? I mean, was it the mass spec results or was it really it was the mass spec results? It was the right? mass spec results. But the truth is that at that time, um, the infrastructure at Yale for mass spec was not what it is today. And so the truth is that it took us at least six months to convince ourselves that what we were seeing was real. And that was a very stressful six months because really the life of this project relied. That was the fundamental result that this entire project is based upon. Um, And it took a long time to convince ourselves that what we were seeing was not simply some error in the weeds, some some weed in the field, but was actually a real peptide that had a beta amino acid in the center right, that was derived from dihydrofolioreductase. I have to agree that it's so often uh, we think about eureka moments in science, but because it's you're, you so want to be able to find out whether or not it's true, it turns out to be sort of torture over six months as opposed to a glorious yippee, here's the gel, it's all done and perfect. It's, it's well, amazing it, how often It's true. Often I mean, the true. truth is that for me, um, until the paper is written and submitted, <laughs> I actually don't believe everything. Uh-huh. And I think that's my role as a mentor. And I actually think that instilling that skepticism into students and coworkers is one of the best things that we as PIs can give to them. Because the truth is that, that you know, I've seen this hundred, you know, a hundred times, is that, you know, we're writing a paper and, you know, we think we have all the data and we think we know what the story is. And then we get to the point where the paper's written and we're kind of now thinking, re- we have everything in our head and we're thinking really hard about what we have done. And so many times what you end up realizing at that stage is that you haven't done exactly what you think. Sometimes it's a little better. Sometimes it's perhaps not as good and you need another control experiment to make sure you can say what you want. Um, but that process is, I think, one of the 
unrecognized glories of being a mentor is communicating to young scientists how to look so hard at their data that they actually go beyond what they have done. Yeah, uh, that's a really uh, wonderful sentiment and actually a, a good place. I think we, we're about ready to wrap up, but I just want to ask you if you have a few words to share about what you're looking forward to most about the exciting research that we'll be conducting in this group in CJOM. Well, you know, I really want to see what properties these new materials have. You know, you know, it, we're not making carbon nanotubes, right? But we're making molecules that I could imagine have some really interesting properties. You know, for example, we could make, you know, fabrics that are somewhere between silk and nylon. <laughs> we could make materials that are something like Kevlar, which is in bulletproof vests, which I will remind everyone is almost a peptide. Right? right, but they have you know little sensors embedded within, or they're pH sensitive, or they degrade under certain conditions. Those are all materials that we could design and synthesize. Um, we could try to make tags for pharmaceuticals so that it would be easy to tell where a specific tablet was made, when it was made, um, is it you know is it is it illicit or not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one can even think about ways to encode information into these polymers, and that's something that I'm thinking very hard about today. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking to me today about this. Uh, I think it's been a, it's been a wonderful discussion that really uh, has illuminated me of many things that I wasn't even aware of. So, so thanks very much for your time, and uh, I look forward to working with you on CGEM going forward. Me too. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs>